QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of the ACP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and whoever you are listening, thank you. All right, friends. So we have our first rapid reaction episode. An important trial was published. We want to know about it, but maybe we haven't had enough time to dive in just yet. So start right here, because today's article is the highly anticipated Annexa 4 final study report published ahead of print in circulation. So it's an open access article. Everyone could pull up the PDF, pull out those printed papers, and let's dig in. So joining me today is a man that needs no introduction Brian Gilbert, most of us are familiar. He's a friend of the pod, uh, but he's an emergency medicine clinical pharmacy specialist at Wesley Medical Center, where he's also the critical care PGY2 RPD. He is the leader of the important cause, hashtag make pharmacy less formal, and he's an aspiring hand model. You can reach out to him on uh, Twitter at GilbertPharmD, and Brian, the man himself, thanks for joining me today. How are you, man? And thanks for having me. Uh, you know, it's exciting to be here. Pretty, pretty awesome stuff with this rapid reaction. I'm ready to get into it. I'm ready to hear what the world thinks about this. I know. I'm kind of curious. It, sh- it should be fun, but I have to ask. So for those who, who know you and have, and have seen us at conferences, right, and especially um, receptions, um, people may be familiar that uh, you tend to have um, – very awesome outfits that emphasize making pharmacy less formal. So in the past, for, for the listeners that don't know, for the past, onesies have, have been in order. So Brian, let listeners know what what's in the works. Yeah, you know, I, I try to keep up with the, the fashion times and the Ron Pym was in at the, at the time of the last uh, SCCM uh, you know, meeting. And so I try, try to stay hip and try to stay with it. And then this past time uh, here in the, the 2023 uh, reception, you know, I was feeling that really that California vibe, you know, the old like starter jacket, oh, yeah. flashy colors. So I was really trying to just go with that. And, and, you know, honestly, I really hope that people show up just to 
part of the reason they show up is just to see what I'm going to wear. Because I'll be honest with you, I don't know half the time. Uh, it's it's whatever you know. You can't really bottle genius up when it comes to fashion. Yep, that's and exactly. And so, right. uh, I, I, you know, nobody puts baby in a corner. So I'm not going to be just the romper guy. I'm not just going to be the the flashy Michael Mann guy. I'm I'm going to be you know whatever it takes, whatever it needs to be uh, for for the important movement, as you said. And I appreciate you uh, being a part of that. I don't know if I'm the leader of it, but I'm certainly uh, one of the most vocal. So. The yeah, man, I, I tell everybody, I wear, I, I wear pajamas to work, you know, so <laughs> like, I, I try not to take myself too seriously. Adult pajamas. You're absolutely right. Okay. So I'm going to give a brief intro to this study for those that may be less familiar. Um, and then instead of the classic journal club format, because I don't think you want to hear me go through all of the, you know, Here's the intro. Here's our methods. So what we're going to do, I'm going to give a brief little intro of it, and then Brian and I are going to go back and forth and give our five biggest takeaways or thoughts about this trial, things that we noticed, things that we want to point out and make sure you see, things that we hope to see, things down the road, et cetera. So we'll go one then another, and I imagine just through that, we'll hit most of the high points. There might be you know, maybe a baker's dozen or something like that, one or two added at the end, but let's get going here. So... The final study report of Indexin A alpha for major bleeding with factor 10A inhibitors or the Anexa 4 study. So this is the third analysis from the same cohort of patients because you might be thinking, man, I've heard Anexa 4 before. You have. You've actually, this can be the third time you've heard it. So they had a 67 patient report in 2016. That was the very kind of first one that really got the FDA approval and things. And then they got the uh, 2019 study I somehow said the final study, but it's not. So we have the final, final study now here in 2023. So this is a multi-center, prospective, open-label, single-cohort, international study. Now, single-cohort meaning um, there is not necessarily a comparator arm, right? Single-cohort meaning it is just one group. So we'll get into that in just a second. Industry-sponsored study, and it takes place in 85 hospitals on three continents, including North America. Um, now inclusion and exclusion criteria important. If you're opening up this new article and you're like, Hmm, I can't find it. You can't, you have to go to the supplementary appendices of the 2016 and 2019 articles. Yeah. Put a pin in that. Cause we're going to come back to that one. Um, but the inclusion criteria, so adult patients with acute overt major bleeding episodes requiring urgent anticoagulation reversal um, and had a factor 10A inhibitor within 18 hours prior to indexin A alpha administration. Key exclusion criteria. Again, there's a list, not going to hit all of them, but um, receiving other anticoagulation reversal or specific like whole blood products within seven days, getting blood products within 12 hours after the indexin infusion, surgery within 12 hours, right? If they're going to go with neurosurgery to the OR, um, a severe ICH. So they define that as a hematoma volume of greater than 60 mLs or a GCS of less than seven. Um, and then kind of the last key one that stood out to me was a, a thrombotic event within the two weeks prior. So, I mean, they're really trying to control, do all the things that they can. And then they had a two kind of co-primary efficacy endpoints. So the percent change from baseline and anti-factor 10A activity post-indexin A-alpha. Now, it's important here to be included in their efficacy analysis. The patients had to have a baseline anti-factor 10A level, and it had to be greater than or equal to 75. So 
if they met that, then they were included in the uh, percent of patients with excellent or good hemostatic efficacy. So if you met the anti-factor 10A kind of uh, uh, requirements, then they would look at if you got good or excellent uh, hemostasis. And then their primary safety endpoint um, was looking at death thrombotic events or right development of antibodies because remember this is a newer drug so brian i think i hit if we're, if we're talking overview umbrella view i think i hit the major points of of that would you agree did i miss anything no i, I think you absolutely absolutely crushed it i think one thing i will highlight because i think that we both you know know that not any study's perfect but when we start talking about uh factor 10a inhibitor reversal this is one of the largest studies that has like confirmed uh, factor 10A presence, right? So like factor 10A uh, anti-activity prior to any sort of antidote or hemostatic agent, there is confirmed activity, which um, to my knowledge is like the largest study that has this for factor 10A reversal. So, um, you know, certainly certainly some things to go off of, but um, I think that is a positive of the study is that we do these patients, you know, one of the, the, the key things that I always kind of get upset with, with some of these uh, quote unquote reversal studies is that we don't even have confirmation that the patient took it other than we asked them, you know, so like a patient's never been known to lie or be confused. So uh, at least in my practice. So, you know, I, I if, if uh, that doesn't come off as sarcastic on the pod, for sure, that was uh, 100% <laughs> yeah, no, it was. It definitely, it, it came off well. Um, I think that's a, per- <laughs> I think that's a perfect lead in, right? You're, you're the guest. So I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you take the Victor Wimbayama pick and, and get the first kind of selection as we go through oh. some of our thoughts. Really good pull there. I really <laughs> like that. If, uh, hopefully people have paused the pod now to Google that reference. So I love that. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, so I, I think, uh, you know, when you look at, we're starting off on like the primary co-influence here, you, uh, we kind of talked about it here is, is we use this anti-10A activity as our like kind of surrogate, right? The same way we would look at an INR for warfarin reversal. Um, so we have that. And then the other, you know, the second half of that, what the thing we care about is did that relate to positive hemostasis, right? Did the patient have a good yep. hemostatic outcome, right? So probably like, things that we actually uh, on paper would really care about, probably more so in the latter, right? And, uh, you know, the the drug did exactly what it was supposed to do. It reduced the anti-10A activity of the drug. Yep. Separately of that, it, patients 80% of the time did have a positive hemostatic outcome. Um, and so that uh, that's a pretty interesting factor. And uh, one thing is, a little uh, confusing about is that we don't have a comparative group, right? So you're left wondering, is there potentially some selection bias there? I don't, I don't want to uh, emphasize that too much because uh, the uh, arm or the, the drug that always uh, is compared to Indexa, there's plenty of selection bias yep, in its yep. uh, uh, data set. So I won't, I won't, you know, judge it too much on that, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, in terms of it's, you could, uh, quote unquote, call this a positive study, and I put that for for those who can't actually see it in quotations. So, but yeah, no, it, it did what it was designed to do: reduce that activity. And uh, ultimately, the investigators and the, the the drug company itself wants to have a positive, the patients to have a positive hem- hemostatic outcome, and eighty percent of the time that happens. 
Yeah, it the the two things the the two if if you had to tell me, hey Nick, you could take two or three sentences from this study, um, and you can wrap it up. To me, I mean, the two thing that the the thing that stands out is this is a direct quote. Overall, there was no significant association between mortality and anti-factor 10A activity level at the nadir, meaning its lowest. Um, and there was no significant association between hemostatic efficacy and change in anti-factor 10A activity from baseline to nadir. And the thing is, is we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna pour over this and we're gonna go through all these details, but like we kind of already knew that, unfortunately, because it's the same data set. And so it seems like they made this co-primary endpoint on the on that hypothesis that if you did let that if you did make a change in those factor 10a levels that it would relate to one or both of those and show a significant change and it didn't and so i think a lot of what we're going to talk about and you know i'm sure people are listening like nick nick and brian are just going to talk all negatives not necessarily right like we don't uh, we're going to talk about like I think the there was just issues with the trial design that I think makes interpreting some of this stuff difficult. And we're going to talk about some studies that are coming, um, but I think we're going to highlight some of the issues we have, why we have them, but not to say that like am, am I am, are you going to see me picketing on the side of the road saying you know ban index index and a alpha or whatnot? Like definitely not. Like that's that's not. But it's just more of I think. In, if you don't dive into this article, you could just glance at it and it can kind of look like a positive study because you kind of have to search for some of those phrases um, within them. And then you mentioned the thrombin generation, right? Because they even drew like thrombin levels and looked at the um, generation of like thrombin generation and seeing how that applied to like hemostatic efficacy. And they, I mean, they... They did everything they could, but ultimately, I think their their primary endpoint, um, because that association wasn't there, it was almost doomed from the start, you know? But they can't turn around. They've been enrolling for four years. Like, it's not, you know what I mean? And I think that is ultimately one of the things that's, if, if you were involved in this study for like the past decade of your life, is probably the biggest bummer. Your Honor, I just would like the record to reflect. I did give positives before I started getting into some of the negatives here. So, uh, hey, we're gonna do, hey, thank you for making sure that this uh, podcast reflected the sandwich method. Because we're going to start positive and then they'll be positive at the end. So guaranteed. All right. So there we go. Yep. <laughs> no idea when this is going to release, but maybe it's Feedback Friday for uh, AstraZeneca or Alexion <laughs> or whoever's listening. So, But no, you, you nailed it, man. I mean, honestly, like, I don't think that the the, the endpoints that they were evaluating is like outrageous, right? So like name a, name a warfarin reversal study that doesn't have an INR involved, right? So like in theory, and it goes back to what you said, is like you, you poured a decade into to research and rolling a lot of money, right? And so and that, that's really not an unreasonable uh, type of outcome to pick, right? So ultimately the, the latter of being hemostatic efficacy is the one we most care about. But I don't really think it's an unreasonable outcome to try to have evaluated anti-tenant activity. Nope. It makes sense mechanistically. Um, it's just now that we're seeing that that may potentially doesn't matter, um, you know, if you're the drug, because that's how it was designed, was to essentially remove the drug 
uh, send the anti-tenant activity back to normal, and then hopefully the patient is able to have uh, positive hemostasis. And yep. uh, I think the thing that uh, that also reflect or is reflected in that is that it really didn't affect thrombin generation, which is like kind of ultimately what a lot of uh, coagulation and hemostasis literature is moving towards. Is like we realize that these uh, surrogate markers like INR and anti-DNA activity don't always reflect um, what it means to, to have positive hemostasis, but um, we do know that thrombin generation is going to be important for, you know, a lot of things, Dr- uh, drug-induced coagulopathies, trauma-induced coagulopathies. And so these thrombin generation assays, once they become more uh, utilized in a clinical setting instead of just a research setting, it's going to be extremely important. So some of this baseline data is extremely valuable and important, especially when we currently don't have any head-to-head data with the alternative drug that is often used for uh, anti-tenate-associated uh, bleeds. I won't say reversal because technically it's really not like the, the other drug, which um, I guess we can name it, PCC, right, mm-hmm. um, is not necessarily reversing that activity, right? So it's not an antidote-like mm-hmm. index. Of, yeah, you're just giving those factors back. You're creating... Uh, hopefully, uh, thrombin uh, and generating that and overcome overcoming that uh, um, coagulopathy from the drug. So, um, you know, again, like I, I, I commend them because this is an important question. Um, it certainly is reasonable um, to evaluate based off of you know every other piece of coagulopathy data we've had. So, um, again, I think that maybe the the takeaway homes, if you were a very pro in alpha person this is like oh yeah this is the greatest study ever it's positive and if you're a more of a cynic or skeptic then this is just more data that doesn't really help you uh change potentially your practice right so especially without having a comparator group i mean honestly like it's really tough because um the way that the drug is supposed to work um did not correlate with hemostatic efficacy. Um, so you're left wondering, is there just some selection bias there? Um, especially, and I'm going to, uh, I'll uh, uh, mention a study here by uh, the group out of uh, University of Tennessee with Leslie uh, Hamilton. They actually just had a recent study that came out on looking at uh, the use of PCCs for factor 10A inhibitor associated uh, TBIs or ICHs. I can't remember um, and they basically found that, like, in mild TBIs, you really don't even have to give an a, a agent to uh, these patients. And so even there, you're left wondering, is there a cohort that really can do fine without any any sort of agent? Um, and so uh, it kind of goes back into the highlights of the inclusion criteria you were talking yeah. about as well and how important that is. And so, yeah, man, I, I don't want to beat the uh, – beat the study down because there is a lot of effort that's put into this and I'm not, you know, I'm not here to, it's, it's certainly not personal to the researchers. I, I do appreciate their, their insights, but I would say that the wording of this paper is slightly more optimistic than I would have been as a researcher. So the, the thing that stood out to me and going to put a massive PSA, those who know me know I'm, I'm not a statistician. Um, I've conferred with Brian prior to recording. He has confirmed with me that he is also not a PhD statistician. Um, although, uh, 
is very involved in research. But the reason I bring this up is, you know, I generally have a rule that the more complicated and hard to understand the statistics are, um, the more likely that you are searching for some sort of association that's not there. Um, I'm sure that there could be statisticians that are going to be able to explain why they did every little thing they did. And they're talking about um, composite data and making anti-factor 10A nadirs. And when I told you I spent mm, 20 minutes attempting to Google and understand these tests to be able to try to talk it out with you all on the pod and realize very quickly that that was not going to happen. I mean, they're looking at restricted cubic spline transformations. I mean, they have 17 supplemental tables. It's just, it. it's one of those things like each one of those by itself isn't that strange. When you have all these different things, it's just like the more complicated it is for me. If I feel like I can't check the, some of the statistics stuff, it's harder for me to know how to apply these kinds of things. Because if you think about some of our other big studies, right? It is simple, chi-square, p-values, confidence intervals, like things that you or I could calculate in Excel. I don't think that these statistics are Excel calculable. Um, and that's just the thing that's like, you know, my red flag, my red flag is up. My red flag is up when when it takes me a while to look at these and I'm still having a trouble understanding what tests they're looking at and trying to do. You didn't learn these for like dinner parties, the Han and Meeker order statistics and uh, the ranking variables. And yeah, man, some of these words, I just like, you, you almost have to Google, you know, like, um, or, or consult your, your PhD friends, shout out Tommy Anno and, and Brittany Bissell and, uh, Mel uh, Baskin Thompson and all that. So, like, you know, I mean, you got to, like, reach out to these people and figure it out. But I agree with you, man. If, if data is strong, I don't I don't think that you need, like, large amount or crazy amount of stats to, to make something look good, right? I, I equate it. I, I tell my residents all the time, it's kind of like taking a really good cut of steak you don't really have to do too much to it. A little salt, pepper, throw it on the grill. That's about it. But if you get a really tough piece of crap steak, you got to do all these different things to make it flavorful and cooking styles and doing various uh, strategies to make it palatable. And, and I think this is kind of, again, I'm not an expert, so I don't want to say like the stats they did were like erroneous or like outrageous because they probably like, probably just way too smart for me but again it just seemed like they took a tough cut of meat trying to make it palatable yeah yeah a hundred percent and then you know um it's let me just you know what let's just read this the figure s1 figure s1 shows the restricted cubic spline transformations of the nadir anti-factor 10a levels along with their 95% confidence intervals. An effect statement within PROC logistic in SAS was added, and the restricted cubic spline of the nadir levels with four knots, like what? Everyone stopped listening as I was reading that, but like, it's just, yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Um, okay, all right, what else What what, what else kind of stood out from, from your perspective, um, kind of diving into the study itself? You know, I think, again, we, we kind of hit home on the, the primary endpoints and some of the things that we think about. But, like, you know, on the flip side of that, we always want to make sure that a good drug is safe. 
And if you look at the thrombotic rates, like they weren't outrageous, right? Right when that 2019 Connolly study came out in New England, or even the original 2016 study, like people kind of were a little deterred from using it just due to the fact that there was such high thrombotic rates. And yep. you know, we ultimately found out that not not only does it have the uh, you know reduction in factor 10A activity, you're removing the anticoagulant. It's got that. Um, you know, different mechanism that activates platelet aggregation, and essentially. And so, um, but when we look at this final cohort, right, 10%, that's not really particularly, like, that's, that's, that's high. It's higher usually in comparison to, to the sort of other, quote-unquote, standard in PCC, right? So PCC, you look at anywhere from 2 to maybe 8%, usually the highest. But, you know, 10% is not super outrageous like it was, you know, previously. Uh, and, and a lot of it, it has to hit home with the fact that these patients that ended up having thrombotic events really had not been restarted on uh, any sort of uh, anticoagulation, yep. uh, prophylactic or full full dose. You know, so like it, this is a good opportunity for all coagulopathy literature to to reemphasize the the point that these patients are uh, uh, hypercoagulable at baseline, right? So that's why they're on a uh, factor 10A inhibitors, so um, they have an insult, TBI or ICH, they're also going to be hypercoagulable usually in those states as well, so, and then now you've given them uh, an agent to reverse the effects of that anticoagulant, so it just reemphasizes that you really need to, as soon as it's safe, restart that, or at least at minimum, um, initiate VTE prophylaxis. Now, some of the the thrombotic events, so I'll let you get into it, is, is a little bit scary. I will say 10% is not always weighted the same, right? So like 8% for PCC, the majority of those, when you look at them, are, are more so going to be VTEs, right? Which aren't great for the patient, but aren't always life-threatening. Yeah, it's not like, like this study, uh, ischemic stroke is the number one thrombosis rate, and it's almost half of their patients, right? Like 44%. I mean, and I guess... As you were talking about it, I was thinking about it, and it does make sense, right? Because was almost eighty percent of these patients were on it for AFib, so it does make sense if you're if you're later to restart. And in this study, not a single person had oral anticoagulant restarted. Some of them um, had some prophylaxis, right? But um, so your point of restarting that is so important. But I also think this is a real world example because we've all been on rounds where people don't want to restart them despite you giving evidence and guidelines. Sometimes people just are uncomfortable for patient-specific reasons. And so as much as I, I, I do think there is emphasis on restarting those orals, I also think this is almost like kind of like a pragmatic example of like, but this is also kind of how it happens in the real world too, like unfortunately. Like you mentioned the thrombosis rate. I'll compare right when we're done with this to, to another study um, that was designed very similarly to this. I want to compare a couple things, but their thrombosis rate was 3.8% leading with the with the highest instance being DVTs. And so it hard to know what to take away of it, right? It's not 20%, but the fact that it's like the fact that the top 3 are ischemic stroke, DVT and MI that makes me a little nervous, right? It wasn't like DVT was 70% of those. Yeah, and like you said, 80% were on it for AFib and when you're talking AFib, we're talking over a 12 month span, right? So like reduction in in a percentage over a year and now all of a sudden 10% within the seven days is slightly concerning. Again, I, I, I'm trying not to, to, I think once we have some phase four data, 
uh, or more phase four data. That, and, and we do have some other retrospective data from other cohorts that, uh, that do suggest it's um, not quite as high in terms of thrombotic events with, and some of our pharmacy colleagues have, have been able to, to do that work. So, um, you know, shout out to them for, for providing some of that. Um, but yeah. I agree, man, I, I 10% is, is within the realm of certainly concerning. And I, I, I love the fact that you bring it up of, it is a very pragmatic uh, type of trial in that this does, I do feel like it does have a good generalizable uh, patient population. So another kudos to them on that, right? So uh, in the theme of, of giving some tough love, but also giving some shout outs where due. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's compare, cause we had mentioned, right? This is a, this is, um, it's, it's observation. It's a single cohort study. So um, I did some searching, right? And once one study stood out to me as one that was designed as similarly as the Anexa 4 could be. And let's talk a little bit about it. So this is called the factor 10A inhibitor uh, related intracranial hemorrhage. So this is a multi-center observational cohort um, receiving PCC for reversal. And they looked at 30-day thrombosis rate and hemostatic efficacy. So this study uh, was published in uh, circulation in 2020, again, open access. And it was done on behalf of the Neurocritical Care Society Pharmacy Study Group. So like Nick Panos, Aaron Cook, Morgan Jones um, are some of the names on the author list, but there are tons, tons more people. Brian's giving me a shout out that he was also involved. So I love that. Um, I know Lori Wetmore from IU was in it. So a lot of people. Now let's talk a little bit about it. So the first thing that stands out, they didn't exclude any patients based on the size of ICH. And um, we'll talk about inclusion and exclusion in the Annexa 4. Um, and we talked about, right, 26 of these patients had uh, thrombotic events, so just under 4%. Their in-hospital mortality was 19%, right? A little higher, but they didn't exclude patients. So you're, the GCSs of threes still got PCC and were included in this study. And if you exclude patients who had a GCS of less than seven, that mortality changes to 11.8%. So the ICH mortality stuff kind of is, is a little all over the map, but that is a little more in line with some of the things that I've, that I've seen, and especially in a pretty sick population. And what they found, they looked at about 350 patients, right? It's almost ex close to the number that the index afforded, and they had excellent hemostasis in almost 82% of patients. Um, same stuff. Majority of patients were over 75, white, male, receiving anticoagulants for AFib. Almost uh, almost 80% of them received the four-factor PCC at about 50 units per kilo. And the other, the other main fact, right, all of those thrombotic events occurred before restarting oral therapeutic anticoagulation. And I bring that up to just talk about some of the findings of a group that had was a single cohort PCC study versus that single cohort INDEXA study because everyone, I think anyone's bias is going to be, is going to be maintained and everyone's going to probably think the same way they felt a week ago or two weeks ago until the index eye study comes out, which is truly looking at PCC versus Indexa in ICH. And we will finally start to get some answers. But I think until then, I mean, it, I brought those groups up only because a lot of the stuff was, was better, right? Like, I don't, not necessarily significantly per se, but like that thrombosis rate probably is, that mortality may be. I, I will say we hope, right, with the next eye. So if you look at the protocol and not, not throw shade at, uh, uh, at, at any company, but again, we're talking about uh, indefinite alpha versus quote unquote standard of care. Now, I've been in arguments with this on Twitter. I certainly 
uh, am open to discussion about this, but I would consider anything that's not indexed in as alpha to be some sort of uh, prothrombin complex concentrate, right? Whether it be FIBA, Accentra, Octaplex, yeah. uh, if you're overseas. I know you have some overseas listeners. Um, and so, you know, to me, if this NXI study comes out and it's not necessarily, you have a, a very wimpy uh, PCC cohort or somehow it's quote-unquote underdosed with anything less than 25 units per kilo or even even 2,000, uh, I know that that is usually supported, um, at least with the anticoagulation forum. Shout out Allison Burnett. Um, but yeah, no, going back to fixed ICH, I do, I, I, got, I will disclose I wasn't part of that study. I don't receive any funding from CSL bearing or or Octopharma or anything like yeah, that. But. Yeah, quick thing. The important study of that is they make a note. Not a single person was paid in that study, right? Everyone was doing this out of the goodness of our heart. <laughs> so so this actually like going, and this is a shout out for NCS and, and the collegial aspects of that. The farm group there is tremendous, man. The best. It is absolutely one of the one of the best groups to be a part of. So is SCCM. Um, yeah, you know, ACC, I'm not throwing anybody on the bus, but it's certainly one of the, the best meetings I, I've been at. Um, this this study literally came from our farm uh, our pharmacy uh, sort of business meeting. It literally started with a conversation, and, and Nick Morgan and Aaron, uh, you know, the leaders of our group there, really just took that and ran with it. So you know, shout out to them. Uh, I think when you look at fixed ICH, uh, two main things like obviously like. You, you named all the positives, right? For sure. I don't really need to reemphasize that. And, and, it, and I think you made a great point of if you were a PCC stand, then you're still a PCC stand. If you're an index stand, you're still a maybe slightly less index stand, but you're still an index. But you probably double down. And, you, you may, you <laughs> may, you may feel, you may feel uh, a little more worried about it, but in, but in like your outward effect, you can't tell at all. If anything, you're more confident. It's a duck on a pond situation, bro. So, <laughs> uh, but I think I, I will be remiss, like if I didn't bring up some of the, the probably the two major limitations I think of with the fixed ICH in comparison to that uh, Nexus study, right? So the first being is that we were not prospective. We were a retrospective uh, and single cohort, like you said. Now, with that being said, you're still at that same selection bias uh, issue that the Nexus is. So I kind of count that as like a wash. Uh, but it is it is for the purest, the great methodologist out there. It is a sort of quote unquote issue, and that's probably why AHA guidelines graded the way they did. Uh, we can get into that another time. I'm sure that's a whole other pod. But uh, the other big major sort of issue, and it goes back to what I what I've talked about some of my issues with coagulopathy data before, is we did not have any sort of confirmed factor 10A activity uh, to confirm drug presence. So. Now, this is more reflective of real-world population, right? So, varying degrees of patients that have, um, you know, like either super super therapeutic or sub-therapeutic values to normal uh, hemostatic value. You know, so, like, this probably reflects the true patient population. It's super generalizable, but uh, it, I would be remiss if I said that, you know, it, it it's matches one for one for a next and i think that's probably the biggest glaring piece that i have um i'm sure you know morgan aaron and, and nick could could have some others or would be able to uh 
you know, tell you, tell you essentially any other issues they have with it. But I think that's probably the biggest one I think of when I look at it. And, and honestly, there hasn't been much um, push from many societies on to collect anti-10A or, or confirm drug presence prior to giving um, any sort of reversal or hemostatic agent. Uh, prior to uh, very recently, like a couple weeks ago, the release of the European Trauma Guidelines, uh, uh-huh. now I actually recommend collecting, uh, whether it be like a calibrated or uncalibrated uh, anti-factor 10A uh, assay. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping that with those guidelines in place, and we've been doing it at my shop uh, fairly regularly, we try to prevent erroneous administrations as much as possible. Um, but that, that once we have that uh, piece, I think it will really be uh, beneficial, at least for confirming whether or not, you know, again, PCC versus indexinet. We, we're going to continue having this talk until the next eye comes out. And if it is yeah. actually designed the way we want it to be, then uh, for sure we, uh, we can get some answers there. If it's not, then I think we're still going to be in the situation we are now, which is going to be really unfortunate yep. for patients. I, I see both sides of that because I also see the other side where they excluded 98 patients from their efficacy analysis because they didn't have the factor 10A levels. So what would that have shown, right? I see, I can see both sides, right? You can, you can argue both because on one side in the real world, what do we do? I'm asking the patient, if you don't know, and it's on their med list, sometimes you have to assume, right? Um, a lot of shops, especially our smaller ones, you know, we work at big institutions where our turnaround time could be fairly quick, but, you know, our friends in rural access hospitals and things, they're not getting any type factor 10A levels at any, any type of remotely helpful time. And so, and that's, I think that's just a research thing in general research for, you know, versus practice. I think that's just a logistical kind of thing. All right. We've talked about the industry stuff. I want to play a game with you. All right. So there are, there are 17 authors 17 authors listed on this paper. Now, we had mentioned that the fixed ICH study specifically um, mentioned that they received the no funding and they did that out of the goodness of their heart. So I want you to guess, I did, listeners, I did not tell him the answer before this. I told him not to look at it. Um, how many of those 17 have a financial conflict of interest related to Indexa to disclose? So, yes, I did not look this up. And me being the eternal optimist that I am, if anybody knows me, you know, that, that I want to just believe in these people and say 40%. So I'm going to say of the 17, there were seven. 15 and a half. So I'm counting a half because the person gave all their money to the, they gave all their fees to their institution. So I can't count that as a full one because they didn't necessarily take it. But like... I point that out because like, of course, industry sponsors, like, of course, they're gonna be doing it. But like, obviously, we have some interests here. And I think that that's a huge, from my gathering, the statisticians, the one person that had no, that had no conflict, like with, so it's just, that's something that I point out of like, it's hard not to be a skeptic when people that have financial interests are doing all these statistical tests and things like that. Okay. By the way, that was Nick talking, not Brian, um, for any, um, potential, um, industry folks that are wanting to reach out to him. This is, this is, uh, Nick Peter's opinion. So are you implying that the statistician did all those loopy loops to try to get a little funding and just like screw the pooch here? I, that's what I'm hearing. There was a very funny, man, I wish I remembered who did it. There was a very funny uh, gif of uh, somebody scribbling aggressively and it says the statistician doing the 39th post hoc analysis. And I thought that was very funny. <laughs> um, 
But like, and of course, oh, like, I'm not necessarily saying that they're involved, right? But I think that leads back to the statistics stuff. But okay, enough about that. All right. Um, I did the, 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 the next section I wanted to talk about was things I would like to see reported that weren't. And the reason I say that is um, in preparing this morning. So what I wanted to see was time to index in the alpha. How long, and I point this out because for those who have not used Indexine Alpha, um, you use 100 or 200 milligram vials. So you could be making 18, you could be reconstituting 18 vials. Guess what? You can't really do that at the bedside. You have to have a 0.2 micron filter. It's a two hour infusion. It's not compatible with anything, I'm sure. The AWP looking at Lexicomp was $3,000 for a 200 milligram vial. So I bring that all in to say, we know how important it is, right? If you ask a neurosurgeon, one of the most important things, they want this fast, right? Like if you're making it at the bedside, every single person is staring at you. Well, you can't make 18 vials at the bedside and then give a two hour infusion, right? Like you just can't, like you can't, you can't, you could do something a little non-steroid IV push it, but you can't do it for an infusion like that. So I didn't think they actually reported it, but it took a while, a while to find it. So I found two things that talk about time to index in alpha. So in table, in the bottom of the third page in the supplementary appendix, table S3, the time from hospitalization to the end of the index in alpha bolus, the median was three and a half hours. And then they added an amendment to the study protocol in 2019, they had a lot of amendments, um, but it was a reasonable expectation that indexinate alpha will commence within two hours of imaging. So Brian, how would your ED colleagues reply if they saw the wet read in the CT of a massive ICH and you told them that indexa bolus would you, that that'd be there in 120 minutes? How would that go over? Because I know in my shop, I'd probably get things thrown at me. There'd be things said to me that I can't repeat on the pod. <laughs> you know, I, I was sitting here looking and, and I, I uh, don't know if they reported it and I don't see it here initially. So the inclusion criteria, right? You could have taken your last dose up to 18 hours. Takes another 100. Uh, it took, what, three hours to get to bedside. Uh, you're talking nearly 24 hours since the last time they potentially took a dose. Yep. Now, if you look to, and then the other thing I looked at here was renal function, you're, you're the majority, close to the majority of patients had uh, credit clearances greater than 60 mLs per minute. So now you're talking about like, that's, that's kind of tricky when you have a drug that may potentially already be at two to three half-lives that were, um, uh, that have occurred since their last dose. So, uh, yes, no, I, I, one of the worst feelings in the world is waiting for something and you're the rate limiting step. I try to tell my learners all the time to never be the rate limiting step. Now, to, to AZ's uh, credit, I think that they have learned the errors of their ways on this and um, have created or at least implemented uh, higher concentration or at least higher dose vial so it's not as much reconstitution. I don't know. I don't have it at my shop personally. From what I hear, they, that has been implemented. Now, you do bring up a good point too is like, or at least something that needs to be said is this is under study conditions. It's, it's it doesn't get better. Hours. It doesn't get better. It's not going to get any better. <laughs> and let's say this is like at two in the morning, right? Anybody that's ever worked overnight knows that there's like one or two sex and you, you know what I mean? And so that is like, 
certainly, certainly, uh, and that's if you have an extra like clinical pharmacist there. Otherwise, like if you're just if you're taking care of the whole hospital, and all of a sudden you get this order, so uh, you're looking at some potentially uh, longer wait times. So I certainly like can appreciate that that uh, under certain conditions this was pro- protracted, but uh, I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it's getting any better in a real world setting, uh, <clears throat> which you could argue too the the positives of uh, having you know. PCC there is because you can give it quickly. Um, to the other credit, there's not actually, you know, a lot of the whole time to brain for hemorrhagic you're, you're not uh, is actually is extrapolated from ischemic stroke. And so, uh, actually, shout out to my resident this year, we're actually looking at this, is, is time to uh, PCC administration for warfarin reversal and looking at uh, hematoma expansions and trying to, to limit compounders there. But, you know, and again, like I, I, we think that time administration is important and, and yep. empirically or imperative or empirically, it seems like that, that should be important, but maybe, maybe it's not, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. But, um, yeah, man, I, that's, that's, that is, I wish they had reported that you're right. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that that is not really ever, emphasized in the marketing release <laughs> or with the MSLs or the sales associates uh, to these neurosurgeons, uh, you know, that would be an interesting uh, sort of blinded uh, time to administration and see see where that waits. And, and I agree with you that most of the time neurosurgeons, the weight of getting it to them quickly is, is going to be um, probably the, the most beneficial. So, so let's uh, let's close with this. Wait, well, but before we close, was there anything? Was there any any other like thoughts, comments you wanted to to uh, make note of? Did we miss anything that you had you had written down? Yeah, I not not that I have written down. I really think we we this back and forth was is probably you know I think that depending on the institution you're as a learner, if you're listening to this, you train at, you get to be sort of in that like cohort of I'm very pro this. This went out. When in reality, the people that seem like they're pro this and this, it's honestly because we just don't have high quality data yet, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we've said it multiple times, but uh, I think we should have an uh, next to eye uh, watch party and release party and, uh, you know, cocktails and, you know, dress down and some uh, some good journal clubs there. With, uh, Bloody with, Marys? Uh, do we do brunch Bloody Marys? <laughs> it depends on the results. Like if I have to eat all this crow... <laughs> Then it's probably gonna be a lot of bourbon for me, and uh, and in the shower just sipping on it. But but if it is if it's a if it's a if, <laughs> if it's a quote unquote positive PCC study for me, I'll be uh, popping the champagne. So uh, <laughs> I, I won't have to say sorry to a lot of people. Um, but <laughs> so what's your what is your like as you as we kind of reflect on this and like look forward, like what are your What's your opinion on on uh, of indexinate alpha like and and is is anything going to change it really before the NXI results come out? No, I, I, I think for right now, and, and this is this is where I think a lot of it since we don't have a ton of high quality data, I think that most institutions what they have, and if you haven't done it, is look at your own internal data, look at how you're doing, and see if they're you know, needs to be any process improvements or changes that you need to implement. 
the other thing to consider is that like there are a ton of different reasons why a patient could still be coagulopathic and have bad uh, hemostasis outcomes yes. uh, beyond just indexin and alpha and PCC. And uh, I think we're starting up some research that may potentially be looking at uh, beyond just the agent uh, risk factors for the development of worsening bleeds, uh, specifically within ICHs. And so uh, hopefully we get some of that going and we can look at that. But no, I don't think so. I, I will say this is this will be the first time we've mentioned cost at all on this pod so far. Um, and even with the reduced cost, like because I now know it's much more cost effective uh, than it was previously, uh, which, you know, shout out to the drug company for realizing, like, uh, uh, many centers initially did not go go after it because of that upfront cost. And so um, even with it, I think I'm still very comfortable for uh, utilizing PCC uh, for my hemostatic agent and these, uh, you know, 10A inhibitor-associated bleeds. Not to mention, there, there's other multiple factors on why I, I like PCCs and other uh, bleeds because there's patients could have other types of coagulopathy beyond just the drug that uh, PCC may benefit. I think the thrombotic risk is still really where I'm kind of mostly concerned over everything, um, and, and that's a, that's a risk for me. But if an XI comes out and shows that an is better, then you know I'll be wearing my AZ flag, you know. So I 100% will be the first to, to switch and get it added uh, to my formulary if it ends up being, um, you know, that much better. And, the, and, and that being said, that the data is uh, even in terms of a, a fair fight between PCC and uh, indexing and alpha. If, you know what, I'm going to put this out there. If we think it is a fair fight... If anybody wants to come out now, and because you can't, you can't come out later and say your team indexa. But if you come out now and say you are, and 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 indexa, I, you're the winner. I'll let someone pie me in the face. Yep, yep, cream pie, right? We'll we'll admit that I was wrong. Um, but yes, we'll have some fun with that. That's exactly right. We'll. I think we need a release party, right? Twenty twenty five isn't that far away. <laughs> no, absolutely not. We need to and. And maybe whoever, whatever winner wins, they can they can uh, uh, potentially sponsor it for us. And uh, love that. Yep, yep. Sponsor those cream pies. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, if you want to reach out to Brian at Gilbert Farm D, Brian, thanks so much, man. This was this was really fun going through some of this. Uh, hopefully, we didn't rustle any feathers, but. Um, if you have strong visceral reactions to anything that um, Brian and I said, um, remember, everything controversial was what Nick said. Everything non-controversial was what Brian said. Um, but Brian, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate your time and effort, brother. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You know, this is this is the third time. I'm, I'm starting to, I'm, I'm going to start gunning for Hawk here soon and, and his title of uh, most uh, frequented guest. And second time in March too, you know. You're coming. So March Madness time. Get your brackets in, guys. Make sure you, they're all good to go. So, Bracketology Sunday. Have fun in Vegas, Brian. We'll talk soon. Thanks again to Brian Gilbert. Um, what a uh, awesome first first rapid reaction kind of episode. I haven't tried anything like this before, so please reach out. Let me know your thoughts. Um, told you Brian's handle. Um, I'm at pharmacy to dose, to dose, uh, or email pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. Uh, the website will have some references, um, and more, uh, pharmacy to dose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is pharmacy to dose.
the Critical Care Podcast.